This is Precepts Audio Message, P.A. 468. Nathan C. Johnson, Bible Teacher. For all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in truth. Book of Psalms. And last time we had looked at Psalms 26 and 27, we saw in 26, David pled with the Lord to stand up for his innocence when he was falsely accused and became a picture of Jesus Christ who was himself falsely accused and vindicated when the Father raised him from the dead. So David asked the Lord to set him in order. He trusts in him, calls on him to examine him, to prove him, to try his kidneys and his heart. Of course, kidneys back then meant the seat of the motions, and heart meant the inner man. His loving kindness was before his eyes. He walked in his truth. He hadn't sat with empty persons or gone in with assemblers. He hated the kahal of evildoers. Notice that? Not the church of evildoers, but the assembly the opposition assembly of evildoers, and he wouldn't sit with the wicked. He, called, he washed his hands in innocence and compassed the Lord's altar. Of course, that's ultimately only true of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was completely innocent, although David was innocent of these false charges. And David in the future, in the tribulation period, when he's falsely accused, will also be innocent. Then he anticipates publishing the voice of thanksgiving, telling of his wondrous works. He loved the temple, the habitation of his house, the place where his honor dwelt. Calls upon God not to gather his soul with sinners or his life with bloody men. In whose hands is mischief and the right hand full of bribes. But he walked in his integrity, called upon God to redeem him. Then his foot will stand in an even place. And in the congregations or in the choirs, I suggest that he will bless the Lord. And then Psalm 27 is another psalm by Israel's great King David. And he calls upon the Lord for time of help for help in a time of trouble and adversity. Enemies are around him, and he trusts the Lord for help. And he says to himself that the Lord is his light and his salvation. Who shall he fear? The strength of his life, of whom shall he be afraid? The wicked were ready to devour him, but they stumbled and fell. And he says, though a host were to stand against them, a whole army would encamp against him, his heart wouldn't fear. When, if war would rise against him, he would be com- confident. We can think of many times when David faced off with a army, the armies of Saul, when Saul came to try to destroy him and his little band of men. When the Philistines came and war rose against him, he was confident in the Lord. And one thing he desired of the Lord, and that he sought after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And we discussed that, discussed that this is what David is going to do in the future. He is going to dwell in the temple in the kingdom, in the temple in the kingdom time. He will behold the beauty of the Lord and choir in his temple. David will be the prince ruling under Jesus Christ the king in the kingdom, and he is going to have his habitation in the holy district of the temple. So he desired that of the Lord, and he wants to dwell in his house all the days of his life, and he will in the future. Of course, he didn't in the past. In fact, the temple wasn't even built, it was the tabernacle, although David love to visit that. Then in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. 
And I suggest that the time of trouble there in Jeremiah 37 is the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period. And that, that, that when David is forced off the throne by the rebels, that the Lord actually hides him in a secret place in his temple. And though his foes would love to find him and capture him and put him to death, they can't find him. He's there in a secret place in God's temple. Until, of course, the abomination of desolation is set up and all are to flee Jerusalem. And now, in that day in the past, his head was lifted up above his enemies. And therefore he was going to offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy and sing praises to the Lord. That takes us back to the past where the temple wasn't built yet. It was at the tabernacle. So he calls upon the Lord to hear when he cries. And when the Lord said, Seek my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. And it's good if we say the same thing, that we seek the Lord. He calls upon the Lord not to hide his face from him, not to leave him or forsake him. And even when his father and mother forsake him, even if they did, the Lord wouldn't. Then he says, Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a plain path because of my enemies. Deliver me not over to the will of my enemies, to the soul of my enemies, their desire. For false witnesses are risen up against me and those who breathe out cruelty. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And notice David is not looking forward to dying and wanting to see the Lord in the land of the dead. This is Eretz Chei, the land of the living, not Eretz Muth, the land of the dead. David doesn't want to die. He wants to be resurrected and see the Lord in the land of the living. So he calls upon all to wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And David's confidence was in him. And we too can wait and have our confidence in the Lord. So that was what we studied the last time, and now we're on Psalm 28. Psalm 28, a psalm of David. So this is another psalm by David, Israel's great shepherd king. And once again, David calls on the Lord for help in a time of trouble in this psalm. Bullinger points out that in Psalms 28 and 29, there are 20 verses, and the name Jehovah occurs 20 times. So David is definitely looking to and calling on Jehovah in this portion. So he says, verse 1, Unto thee will I cry, O Lord my rock, be not silent to me. Lest if thou be silent to me, I become like them that go down into the pit. So he says, Unto thee will I cry, O Lord, my rock. So he says, Unto thee will I cry, and that's cry aloud. To cry out, out loud in an audible voice. Now this is, should be where we too first cry when we are in trouble. When trouble comes, when trouble arises, our first thought and our first recourse should be to cry unto the Lord. And it should not be, as it is with so many, to tr cry to, say, the government or to cry to religious organizations, or to cry to family, or to cry to friends. No, sometimes we cry to these, and they might help us, or they might not. But our first recourse, our first one we should turn to, is the Lord. And that's who David turned to. Unto thee will I cry, O Lord, my rock. Be not silent to me. Now the word here means deaf, and therefore dumb. In other words, it's not just that he 
doesn't say anything, but he doesn't do anything. He's inactive. So he says, don't be inactive for me. Don't not do anything to help me. He says, last, if thou be silent to me. And the second silent is a different word. It means speechless. Be quiet. Lest if thou be quiet to me, I become like them that go down into the pit. Pit is the Hebrew word bore, something hewn out, like a well, a cistern, or here Bollinger suggests a sepulcher, a dugout sepulcher. So he says, Don't be don't be inactive toward me, Lord. Lest if you are inactive toward me, I become like those who go down to the sepulchre, like lest I, in other words, lest I die. And we realize that David many times in his lifetime faced troubles so difficult and so perilous that indeed he would have died without the help of the Lord. Verse 2, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracle. So he calls on the Lord to hear the voice of his supplications. And of course, by hear, he means more than just to hear the sound. He means to listen to and answer. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry unto thee. When I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracle. Now, lifting up the hands is not in praise here. And it's not as the charismatics do, where they think somehow it brings them closer to the Holy Spirit to lift their hands or that their hands become like antennas for the Spirit to enter. No, when he lifts up his hands here, it means in prayer. And when the Bible speaks of the lifting up the hands, it means in prayer and supplication to the Lord. And notice here, lifting up the hands and the voice of his supplications are made parallel here in this verse. As we see often in Hebrew poetry, a thing is put two different ways. And that's one of the, that's Hebrew poetry, when you say the same thing two different ways. So his lifting up his hands is the same as him crying out in supplication to the Lord. And he's lifting up his hands toward his holy, his set-apart oracle. Now, oracle in Hebrew, literally, that means speaking place. And this Hebrew word is used in the books of Kings and the book of Chronicles for the holy of holies, or the most holy place in the temple. And this is the only place it's used outside of Kings or Chronicles, is right here. But he's lifting his hands toward the Holy of Holies, toward the most holy place. Of course, in his day, it would have been in the tabernacle, later on in the temple. Verse 3, Draw me not away with the wicked, and with the workers of iniquity, which speak peace to their neighbors, but mischief is in their hearts. So he calls on the Lord not to draw him away with the wicked, with the lawless, and with the workers of iniquity. So he sees the wicked and the workers of iniquity as being drawn away, in other words, to death, to destruction. That's the rightful place, that's the wages of sin, is death. He says, don't draw me away with those, with the wicked, with the workers of iniquity. He says, these are those which speak peace to their neighbors, but mischief is in their hearts. And speak peace there 
is literally in Hebrew, say shalom. And that's when Hebrew word probably a lot of people know. Shalom means peace. So they say shalom to their neighbors. But more than mischief, ra'ah, calamity, is in their hearts. And heart there is labab, the, again, the inner being, not the seat of emotions, but the real you deep down inside is the heart. So they say shalom to their neighbors. They say, I wish you peace. But in their hearts, they're only wishing calamity. Now remember, David is speaking as a ruler. David was a king. And he has seen many rulers of nations around him speak like this. Speak and say, oh, we want nothing but peace for Israel. When in their hearts was just the opposite. Now David does not want to be classed with this kind of ruler or with this kind of man. Someone who says, peace to his neighbor. And in his heart, he really wants calamity. He says, don't draw me away with people like that. Verse 4, give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them after the work of their hands. Render to them their desert. So he calls on God to give them according to their deeds, according to their works. And this was an appropriate prayer in David's dispensation. And it's an appropriate prayer at a time when God is judging, when he's setting things in order. When he's acting out of justice and judgment and fairness. But today, when God is being only gracious, it is useless to ask God to give anyone according to their deeds. Because he's not going to do it. Whether it is good deeds or whether it is wicked deeds, God is not rendering to people according to their deeds today. Because now he will only act through the riches of his grace. So we have to recognize the dispensational character of this. And we can only pray such things regarding the life to come. Because we know, well, God only shows grace today. Someday the people to whom he's showing grace will stand before him in judgment. And then he will render to them according to their deeds. But in David's day, he might have done it even in that day. And certainly he will do it that way in the kingdom of God. Render to men according to their deeds. And in this case, he says, and according to the wickedness, and that word means just plain badness, according to the badness of their endeavors. He says, give them after the work of their hands. Again, the things that their hands have done, the same thing as their deeds. Give them after the works of their hands and render to them their desert. Give them exactly what they deserve. And that is what God's government, what God's justice is all about, is giving to men exactly what they deserve. Whereas God's grace is about showing love and favor to the undeserving. So David calls upon these wicked workers of iniquity who say shalom, but really calamity is in their hearts. He calls on God to give them after their works. Give them what they deserve. Verse 5, Because they regard not the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands, he shall destroy them and not build them up. So these people did not regard, they did not consider the works of the Lord. Now this was certainly less excusable then than now, for God would then work openly. And he often did work openly. Whereas now he acts secretly and in grace. Yet we can say that certainly the same thing is true. Men still fail to consider 
the works of the Lord. Now he calls on the Lord to consider their works and give it according to their works because they refuse to regard the Lord's works. He called upon God to give them after the work of their hands. He says they did not regard the operation of his hands, the things that his hands had done. And because of this, he says he shall destroy them and not build them up. And the idea of destroy there is to tear them down, of course, the opposite of building them up. He shall tear them down and not build them up because they didn't regard him and his works. Verse 6, Blessed be the Lord, because he hath heard the voice of my supplications. Now we've discussed that the English word bless has become a very nebulous word. It has very little real, real meaning in English. We use it and it means maybe something vaguely good, but we're not sure exactly what. That's not true of the Hebrew, however. This is the Hebrew Barak. Remember there is the Judge Barak in the Book of Judges. His name meant bless, blessed. And basically bless in this case means spoken well of. Now remember David started this psalm calling on Jehovah for aid. Now this aid has apparently come and he speaks well of him for it. So he says, Blessed be Jehovah, because he hath heard the voice of my supplications. So he has apparently heard David, he has apparently heard his cry, and not been silent to him. And so now he speaks well of him for it. Because he had heard, he had answered, he had acted. Verse 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoiceth, and with my song will I praise him. So he says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. So his strength and his protection, he says, is Jehovah. And we realize that the Lord is the true protector and the true source of strength. And David realized that and he saw that in his life as the Lord protected him and gave him strength many times. Then he says, my heart trusted in him. And I am helped, therefore my heart greatly rejoiceth. So David puts his heart for his whole being. And remember, as I've said before, the heart was the inner being, the real you deep down inside. And notice the order here. David trusted in Jehovah in the past. He was helped, that would be in the present. And therefore he will rejoice in the future. So my heart trusted in the past, I'm helped, present, my, therefore my heart greatly rejoiceth, and with my song will I praise him. And this song is a song as of a song of a choir. And probably he's referring to this psalm, which if he put it to music would indeed be a psalm, a song of praise. So he says, with this song he will praise him. Probably meaning this psalm right here. Verse 8, the Lord is their strength. And he is the saving strength of his anointed. So he says, the Lord is their strength. Whose strength? Well, his, his people's strength. His anointed strength, as we have in the second line of the verse. And he is the saving strength. Saving there is Yeshua, salvation. 
from which comes the name Yahashua, or we make it in English Joshua, and in Greek they made it Jesus, which we make Jesus. Bolger points out that this is plural. And so he says he's therefore, he is the great saving strength, or the strength of salvations. So the Lord is their strength, and he is the strength of their salvations. Or the strength of salvations. Now the second strength here is like a stronghold. A strong place. So it's like saying he is the saving stronghold of his anointed. Anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach, which we make in English because it's hard for us to say Mashiach. We make it Messiah. And in this case, probably referring to David himself. Although, of course, it's also true of all those who are designated or marked out as belonging to him, that he is their strength. And he is their stronghold, their place of strength. Then verse 9, Save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. So he goes from himself and what God has done for him. He has called upon God to render to the wicked according to their deeds. And now he calls upon him to save your people. And bless your inheritance. Again, bless there is speak well of, Barak. And of course, when the Lord speaks well of somebody, he's not just expressing a wish. But when the Lord speaks well of someone, his words will indeed come to pass. And this reminds us of Ephesians chapter 1, when it tells us the Lord, eulogeo is the Greek word that corresponds with the Hebrew Barak, that he speaks well of us in Christ. And Ephesians chapter 1 tells us all the things he says about us in Christ. It's not that he's fishing for compliments. Oh, he's got nice hair, he's a snappy dresser, something like that. No. No, he speaks well of us all the things that he has done for us in Christ. And he makes those things true. He doesn't just try to find things to compliment us about. So save your people and speak well of your inheritance. Then feed them also, and feed theirs like a shepherd would do. Tend them like a shepherd. And lift them up forever. Raise them up for the olam. And olam is the Hebrew word, and in the New Testament it's ion, for the eon, and it can mean in perpetuity, perpetually, but it could also mean for the outflow. Now all these things, he has not saved his people, blessed in his inheritance, all these things in the past. We realize his people, Israel, his nation was destroyed long ago and has not been restored. But in the future it will be restored. He will save them, he will bless them, he will lift them up for the kingdom eon. And so in the coming kingdom of God, this will be most true. And he will do all these things for his people. So this was David's cry to the Lord for help in a time of trouble. And his desiring of the Lord to act discriminatorily toward his enemies. To bring upon them what they deserved. And toward his people to bless them and lift them up and shepherd them.
So chapter 29 of Psalms. A Psalm of David. So this is another psalm written by Israel's greatest king of the past, David. He says, verse 1, Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. And give there means basically to bring as due. Describe to the Lord or bring as due unto the Lord. O ye mighty. But mighty there is more than just the mighty. In Hebrew it is sons of God. Elim. So it says, Give unto the Lord, O ye sons of God. Now we're all familiar with the idea of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But who are the sons of God? Well, clearly the King James translators didn't know and didn't like the phrase, so they just translated it away by making mighty. But who are the sons of God? Well, remember the meaning of a son. And a son, we use it in English, it just means somebody's little boy, and it's the male version, and the female version is daughter, means somebody's little girl. But to the Hebrew, son meant far more than that. A son was a representative. If you were the son of your father, it meant you represented your father. And in their family business, when, a, when one of their boys, usually, would be adopted as the son, it would mean that he was now in charge of the family business just like the father. And he could rule the family business just like the father. And we see that even in the case of kings, that sometimes the kings would put their son on the throne, who was going to rule after them. In the last couple of years of their rule, the two of them would rule together. And that was because that child was the son, the one who was going to represent the father and take control when the father died or couldn't do the job anymore. So a son came to make just plain a representative of a thing. And Hebrews would speak of a son of a thing as someone who expresses the character of a thing. We're familiar with the phrase sons of Belial, Belial meaning worthlessness. That means those who have a character of worthlessness. doesn't mean that worthlessness was their dad. It means that their character represents worthlessness. That's the kind of people they are. So these sons of God are those who represent God by ruling under him. These are those who are rule under God and with God's authority. Now, in the book of Job, the sons of God is referred to angels. And we see that when the sons of God appeared before the throne to report to God, and Satan appeared among them as having been established as a son of God, and then he rebelled against them, of course. But this also could refer to, I believe, to human rulers over God's people. Those who God had set up to rule over his people with his authority. So he calls on to all, whether it is the angelic sons of God or human ones, all should ascribe, all should give as due to the Lord, O ye sons of God, give as due to the Lord glory and strength. And there's no doubt about it, rulers today do not glorify God as they should. But, 
we can be sure that all rules, all rulers will do this in the kingdom of God to come. That then they will certainly ascribe to the Lord and give him his due, the glory and strength that is his due. Remember, glory is the idea of glorification. The honor, the esteem in which the Lord should be held. Verse 2, give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So he says, give again, this is the third time we have this word, meaning rent, ascribe or bring his due unto the Lord, the glory, the esteem, the honor, the glorification due unto his name. Remember, his name is his reputation, and a true name is a true reputation based on a true character. And indeed, the Lord's reputation based on his true character deserves to be glorified, deserves to be held in the very highest of esteem. Then he says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship meaning to prostrate yourself, bow down onto the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now this word for beauty is not used elsewhere of beauty. Bollinger says this means his glorious sanctuary or his set-apart place. And this is a reference to the temple. So he's saying bow down to the Lord in his set-apart glorious sanctuary, his temple. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. So we are talking about rulers. And what is going to cause the rulers of the earth to ascribe unto Jehovah what is due to him? The glory, the strength, the worship that is due unto him. What could possibly cause the rulers of the earth to do this? And we get the answer in verse 3, his voice speaking. Someday, Jehovah will speak. And when he speaks, this will cause all on earth, including the rulers, to ascribe to him the proper glory. So here we have him speaking. And his voice speaks seven times in this passage, it speaks of his voice. And so this is the theme of this psalm, and it is God speaking. And I think importantly, this is God speaking as he begins his kingdom. And it's his speaking. It will not be Jesus Christ coming back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all who don't know God and all who don't obey the gospel. No, it will be God speaking that brings in his kingdom. Now, the voice of the Lord is upon many waters. Well, the Lord's voice certainly could echo over the sea, but I think the waters here probably speaks of the great sea of men on earth. And for the Lord to take control on earth, he doesn't have to send out an army. He doesn't have to do it by fire and brimstone and a sword. And he's not going to do it by bringing the whole world into, quote-unquote, the church. And causing the church to convert the world to Christ, as some very optimistic post-millennialists thought he was going to do. But the Lord's voice is going to speak over the sea of men on earth. And then it says, the God of glory thunders. And again, this is El. The sons of God were the sons of El, the Elim. Here we have 
God, El again, the mighty God, the God of glory thunders. He has the one he's the one who has power to speak and bring his government into authority over the earth. And his voice when it speaks will be like thunder over the whole earth. And it will echo over the whole earth, and all will hear it. Then he says, The Lord is upon many waters. And I think that means that when he speaks, he will take the rule over them, rule over these waters. Now this reminds us of all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and the creation, where we read that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters when the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep, that he hovered there and brooded over the waters in preparation for what he was going to do to say, let there be light. And the Lord again will hover over the waters when he speaks and says, let there be light, and this time not physical light, but this time the light of truth. And all will see the truth, and even the rulers of the earth will worship and ascribe to the Lord glory and strength when he does that. Then verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So the voice of the Lord is powerful, and this is how it can reach all people on earth at once and affect them all profoundly. And it is because of its power. And no one else's voice could reach out and do this. Only the voice of the Lord can reach the deaf. Only the voice of the Lord can reach the insane. Only the voice of the Lord can reach the simple, the child, and the intellectual all at once. And that is because the voice of the Lord is powerful. Then the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And that is the voice of the Lord speaking and letting the, the world know and impressing upon them that this one is ready to rule and that he has the power to rule. None will be able to oppose it. None will be able to stop it. When the Lord speaks and says he's going to rule, they will know when they hear his voice that there will be no standing against that. Verse 5, The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. Now, cedars were the greatest and the most valuable of trees. And often they are used as symbolizing the rulers of the earth. These magnificent and most prized, most valued trees symbolize the magnificent, the rulers, the wealthy, the powerful of the earth. Now, in the poetic picture we're getting here of the Lord's voice being like a storm thundering, it would, of course, be the lightning that breaks these trees. But we realize that that's just the figure, that the reality is that the Lord will break the rulers. They will not be able to stand against him. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon means whiteness, and it was the famous forest in northern Israel and over in Phoenicia, or Tyre, that had the best of the cedar trees. And all the best cedar wood came from Lebanon and Israel. That's what they built the temple out of, was the cedars of Lebanon. So again, this symbolizes the rulers who are broken before the mighty power of the voice of Jehovah. Verse 6, He maketh them also to skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. So here is pictured the earthquaking. The thunder is so loud, 
we probably all felt the power of thunder that the very earth seems to shake with it. So here the voice of the Lord is so powerful, more powerful than thunder, that it actually causes an earthquake. And it causes the cedars of Lebanon to skip like a calf. Now remember, imagine a young calf skipping around. Well, then imagine a tree doing the same thing. Of course, it's doing that because there's an earthquake. Then Lebanon, again, whiteness, the, the forest, and Syrian. Syrian means breastplate. And it was named the Sidonians. Remember, Tyre and Sidon were the two primary cities of Phoenicia. The Sidonians called Mount Hermon. They called it Mount Syrian. And that name only occurs twice here in Psalm 29 and also in Deuteronomy 3 and verse 9 where Mount Hermon is called Syrian. Deuteronomy 3 and verse 9 says, Which Hermon the Sidonians call Syrian and the Amorites call it Shanir. So Syrian is Mount Hermon. So it, it pictures the cedars skipping like a calf, and then Mount Hermon, Mount Syrian, skipping like a young unicorn. Young there, though, is the Hebrew ben, meaning son of. Like the son of a unicorn. Well, as far as we know, unless there actually was a horse with a horn... <laughs> Of course, there are a lot of creatures with horns, so I don't think that's too far-fetched. But for the most part, we think of unicorns as being a fantasy creature. Again, like I said, I don't know. A creature goes extinct, and next thing you know, people are thinking it was just a fantasy. And I don't, like I said, there are plenty of creatures with horns. I don't think there's anything too fantastic about a horse with a horn to be impossible. At the same point, it's pretty questionable that this word means a horse with a horn. Bollinger suggests it means a buffalo. Others suggest that it means a wild oxen. Perhaps the Orach. The Orach is said to be the wild progenitor of our modern domesticated cattle. And of course, we don't really have wild cattle anymore. But supposedly the wild cattle that were the original ancestors of our modern domesticated cattle were the aurochs. And we imagine them skipping on the hills before they were captured and domesticated and tamed. And he says Mount Hermon is going to skip and Lebanon is going to skip the same way because of the power of the voice of the Lord and how it makes the earth to shake. But again, this mount mountain if it's symbolizing the rulers, the sons of God, the rulers of the earth, it's causing them to shake and tremble. Verse 7, The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. Or Bollinger suggests, The voice of the Lord cleaveth with flames of fire, divides with flames of fire. And so this refers to the lightning. So the voice of the Lord is like lightning. It cleaves, it divides the trees apart. And when the Lord takes control of the earth, I believe that he will split apart great nations at his command. I do not think that all the great and large nations of the earth, like ours is a very large nation, that these will all stay intact. The Lord will divide nation, some nations he might combine, 
Others certainly he will divide with flames of fire, and none, when he divides, will be able to join back together. So he will split apart even the great nations with his voice. Verse 8, The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. The Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. So the voice of the Lord shakes or causes to dance, again, causing an earthquake, shakes the wilderness. Jehovah shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Kadesh means holy. Could be Kadesh Barnea, which was a place in the south of Judah. And if so, Mount Hermon being in the north and Kadesh Barnea being in the south, this would mean that the voice of the Lord reaches from the far north to the far south of Israel, and therefore the whole land hears it. Now I believe when this takes place, we expand out beyond the land of Israel, I think the whole world will hear his voice at the same time. But David focuses in this psalm on Israel. As so often is the case in the Bible, Israel is the focus. Bullajover thinks this is Kadesh Naphtali, which would be near Lebanon and therefore would be in the same vicinity as Lebanon and Syrian. But at any rate, the voice of the Lord is shaking, causing this earthquake in the wilderness, in the mountains, and so forth. Verse 9, The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calve, and discovereth the forests. And in his temple doth every one speak of his glory. So the voice of the Lord makes the hind, or the deer, to calve, the deer to give birth. In other words, through fright. The deer is so frightened by his voice that it gives birth. Now, what is the symbol here? Well, I think the Lord's voice will birth many things on earth. And men will fear when they hear his voice and give place to his ways. And they will, through the Lord's power, give birth to his kingdom on earth. And discovereth, or strippeth bare, the forests. And again, in the storm, the forest could be stripped bare by the power of the storm. But if the forest, the cedars and so forth, are symbolizing the rulers, this could be referring to the complete subjection of the rulers to Jehovah. That they are stripped bare, they have no resistance to make against the Lord and his voice when he speaks, they will be stripped bare before him. Then it says, And in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. Now the word temple here is actually the word palace. And Bodra suggests it refers to heaven itself. Yet in his temple on earth, I believe that all the rulers of the world will learn to give him glory. That's how he started the psalm, is that all the sons of God ascribed him glory and strength. So I don't think it's any stretch to say that this is in his temple on earth. And the temple on earth is sometimes called the palace of the Lord, as well as his temple in heaven. It says, In his temple doth everyone say glory. It's not speak of his glory. In his temple everyone says glory. And again, glory means esteem, honor. Of course, they're referring to the Lord. Verse 10, The Lord sitteth upon the flood. Yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. 
So the Lord sits upon the flood. So his voice over the waters, as we had it in verse 3, corresponds to him sitting over the flood. Now this word is elsewhere only used in Genesis referring to Noah's flood. And this is the only other time it appears. So it's a clear reference back to Noah's flood. And the Lord sat upon the flood. In other words, he was in charge of it. Now today, when iniquity comes in like a flood, he sits as king in spite of it. We had his spirit upon the waters in verse 3, taking us back to creation. Yes, he sat it as king over the waters at creation. But also, in another future time, the picture here may be of the flood caused by his spirit being poured out on the world to start his kingdom. And that will be a flood of light, of truth, and so forth. And the Lord certainly will sit as king over that flood. But whatever flood we're talking about, certainly the Lord sits as ruler over it. And it says, the Lord sits as king for the Olam. In other words, outflowingly, perpetually. And when he realized that the word Olam has to do with a flow, well, that's fitting for sitting over a flood. So he sits as king for the kingdom Eon. And the kingdom Eon will be a greater flood than that Noah experienced. Again, not a flood of water, but a flood of God's power, his light, his truth. And he will be the king over it. Verse 11, the Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. So when that day comes when the Lord speaks and his power takes control of the world through his voice, he will strengthen his people. And he will bless his people. Again, this is Barak. He will speak well of his people with shalom. Again, he will say shalom to his people. So this is the calm after the storm. We've had the storm, the thunder, the lightning, the earthquake. Now he speaks shalom. He speaks peace to his people. So his great thunderings ultimately bring peace to the earth. His mighty voice speaking ultimately brings peace to the earth. And also remember, peace means not just tranquility. It means unity. And he will... Speak well of his people with unity with himself. He will truly be unified with them. So this shows us, I believe, when all of this takes place at the kingdom of God. And this psalm is speaking poetically of the voice of the Lord going forth to start that kingdom. Amen. May it go forth even today. But we're out of time for today, and we'll have to take up from there in our next study.